When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for Tuesday Terror here on the Mutual Audio Network. Be sure to leave the lights on while you listen. The following audio drama is rated R and is recommended restricted for anyone under the age of 17. You're listening to Cthulhu vs. Kaiju by Mitchell Leete, performed by Anna Capraro and Scott Miller, produced by Citadel Studios for Sentinel Creatives. Emergence. The elevator doors opened with a jolt, and a silky female voice announced our arrival. Platform 53D. They changed the automated voice every day. Yesterday, she'd been from Eastern Europe. Today, she was a southern belle. I nodded to my ward and stepped out of the elevator, not waiting to see if she'd follow. Aside from a few figures hunched over their computers, the floor was empty. The server staff were not due for another hour at least. Most of them would still be sleeping off their last shift, or grabbing a quick bite at the local, enjoying what little time they had off before the next one began. When they did arrive, the level would be a hub of activity. Scientists, research teams, statisticians, a whole ensemble of the intellectual elite gathered from around the world, in one building. Languages and ideologies would collide, Conflicting theories, beliefs and assumptions would be thrown from one end of the hall to the other. But that would only come later. For now, the level was quiet, and I walked across the floor unimpeded by the usual scurry of bodies. From the scuff of her cheap sneakers against the tiles, I knew that my guest was right behind me. We reached the end of the room, and I flashed my security pass at Edgar, only to roll my eyes when he stopped us to examine it properly. He'd seen my face day in and day out for the last five years, with the one notable exception of a sick day sometime in May of 2026. You know the rules, Captain. I have to swipe you in. He took my pass, pressing it against the red eye of the scanner embedded in his desk. Haven't seen you around before, he said, accepting the ID of the woman who trailed me around most of the morning. She's just an observer. Edgar handed back our cards and smiled at my guest. Well, enjoy your stay, Miss Fern. Doctor, she replied, looking up from her keyboard. Thank you. We passed through the checkpoint and took another elevator up to our last stop for the morning. Observation deck 1A, the bell informed us as we stepped out. A far cry from the open space of the research centre below, 
the passage to Observation Deck 1A was narrow and claustrophobic. An orange light blinked overhead, and about a dozen unseen lenses zoomed in on our persons. A whole security team would be sliding through our biometric scans, T-rays, viral diagnostics, heat signature trackers. Edgar's little security booth really was a waste of everyone's time. We were currently undergoing one of the most intense security checks in the world, and I doubted the young doctor even realised it. What did you say you'd do again? I glanced over my shoulder, catching her eye as she scribbled something down. She was pretty, in a matter-of-fact sort of way. Mousy blonde hair hung down to her shoulders, and she wore glasses a size too big for her face. Her lips were thin, which made her seem colder than she probably was. I teach ancient languages at Princeton. I snorted. What's a professor of ancient languages doing in a UNGDM facility? She smiled. Sating my curiosity. Hardly a reason to be granted access to one of the most secure compounds in the world, but I didn't really care. I'd been told to show her around, and that's what I'd do. The passage ended before a steel door, and I underwent one final retinal scan before gesturing at her to do the same. I knew that if either of us failed, or if any of the scans prior to this one had triggered an alert, the air around us would have been sucked out within seconds, leaving us floundering while security teams moved in. We waited a tense moment before the light flashed green above the door and it slid open. I took a breath, feeling that oozy feeling I always did when entering the negative pressure room. There were two yellow hazmat suits waiting for us on the walls, and I took the one laid out for me, gauging by its size that someone under six foot would be swallowed up by it. The doctor followed my lead, pulling her own suit over the lab coat and jeans she'd chosen to wear for her visit. Have you had contact with anyone suffering from radiation poisoning, swine flu, influenza or Ebola in the last two months? I pulled on my gloves and stared at her pointedly. The scans would have picked up anything out of the ordinary, but it didn't do any harm to double-check. Negative. Any known terrorist cells, revolutionary bodies or persons listed as dissidents by the United Nations, NATO or the Pacific Defence League? She snorted, pulling on her own gloves. I'm sure I'd tell you. Anything else? She picked up the mask and visor, dropping the helmet over her head then fastening the clasps with a practised hand. I shook my head and latched the seals to my suit, repeating the process with hers. Once we were entirely concealed by the clumsy yellow body bags, I gave the thumbs up to the closest camera and braced myself. A high-pressure pump pounded us with antibacterial agents from all corners of the room, forcing me to arch my back against the force. The first time I'd gone through the chamber... I'd nearly been blown off my feet by the shock. The doctor seemed to be managing okay, though. Still, I smiled behind my mask, seeing that the sheet she'd been filling out so tirelessly was soaked through, and black ink had bled out all over the page. I hope that wasn't anything important, I said, with a nod to her clipboard once the pressure had worn off. She pursed her lips behind her visor and gifted me with a raised brow, but didn't reply. I doubt they'd let you keep your notes anyway. I walked to the other end of the chamber and pressed my hand against the red seal lock. The oozy feeling returned for a second, before the door swung open and we were granted our freedom. We waddled down a series of steps, 
hands held to the railing to keep ourselves from slipping. Industrial-grade fans whirred beside us, drying out our suits as we crossed the final passage before Observation Deck 1A. Ever seen one of them up close? The doctor was quiet while we walked, and I didn't think she'd reply, but then she let out a sigh and nodded. I was in Kyoto when the first of the Lake Biwa brood emerged, but I didn't see much before the embassy airlifted us out. Then again in Porto Alegre. I just made it out that time. Lake Biwa. I remembered the reports. The city had been ravaged by what appeared to be at least three Class Four kaiju. The Pacific Defense League had hardly been ratified when their first challenge had arisen. The engagement had not gone well, and the city had been left as little more than a ruin. Ancient languages sure take you places, I said, gripping the handle of the door to the observation post. She laughed. <laughs> you have no idea. Observation Deck 1A always reminded me of an air traffic control tower. Hundreds of screens covered every inch of space, and reams of data flowed in a never-ending stream upon them. Aside from the off-white glow from the screens, the light in the room was carefully maintained, and I had to squint while my eyes adjusted to the gloom. Unlike the platform below, the observation deck was always busy. Research teams migrated from one desk to another, squeezing their way past security personnel and intelligence agents, then flocking to the next computer screen in an endless loop. At any given moment, there were perhaps 50 people crammed onto the platform, like sardines, a description I found more apt given what lay beyond the viewing ports up front. I nodded to a few familiar faces and waved the doctor ahead of me. Seeing them up close tends to knock people, I said, as we walked between the blinking screens. It's a power thing. Knowing you're no longer the apex predator on this planet is one thing, but being confronted by that reality in the flesh is altogether more meaningful, more real. How philosophical, I snorted. See for yourself. The last row of desks came to an end in front of a short flight of steps, which I took two at a time, emerging at the top before the doctor. The viewing ports were massive translucent panes, spread out across the surface of the wall. I briefly remembered the first time I'd stood on the platform, staring out the bulletproof glass, knowing that if the things outside willed it, they'd tear the platform apart like it was cardboard. Through the glass, I could see the heart of the facility laid out before us. About as tall as a football stadium, and twice as wide, the area was ringed by other observation posts like the one we were in. Beneath each of the platforms, hundreds of steel pylons had been erected, about a million miles worth of cable ran between them and the viewing decks above. But the reason for all of this, for the pylons and observation posts, for the thousands of staff and security protocols, for the facility's existence, stood on the other side of the window. I smiled, feeling that thrill I always felt when being there, and turned to the doctor. See what I mean? She'd somehow managed to find a dry page, and was jotting down notes on her clipboard. I couldn't make out her expression behind the mask, but she seemed relatively unperturbed. If a hundred-foot-tall killing machine didn't impress her, I didn't want to know what would. I rolled my eyes and stared out of the window. King was a killing machine. That was beyond question. 
Standing just over 100 feet tall, he could switch between bipedal and quadrupedal in a heartbeat. His thick, leathery skin was near impenetrable by conventional means, and the spike-like protrusions on each shoulder doubled as a battering ram. I'd seen his triple barbed tail rip through steel and flesh with ease on a number of occasions. Like the other two kaiju in the facility, King's arms were fused and ended in four-digit claws. His reptilian face was angular, not unlike that of a tyrannosaur, but that was where the comparison ended. Two red eyes stared down at us from each side of his head. A pair of curved tusks hung from his jaw, and he emitted a constant green bioluminous glow from his mouth. A single drop of the venom in his saliva would pollute a city's water supply for a month, if not longer. Behind him, kept in stasis before their own observation posts, were Riptide and Bonehead. Though they shared some physiological traits, the fused arms and barbed tails, they were otherwise quite different. Riptide was lighter than King, more nimble on her feet. Her features were altogether more serpentine, and where King's shoulders were covered in bulbous protrusions, hers were slender and narrow. The gap between her arms were webbed, and gills ran along both sides of her body. As a bioweapon, Riptide was more advanced, and she had a number of destroyer capabilities. High-yield plasma bursts could be generated in an instant, and deployed from the two bioorganic tubes on her chest. I'd seen the devastation they could inflict, and knew that, despite her slender size, she'd pose a challenge even to King. Bonehead, on the other hand, was squat and muscular, Standing at around 80 feet tall, he was the shortest of the three, but what he lacked in size, he made up for in sheer strength. His face was more spherical than the others, and covered by a hard exoskeleton that put King's own leathery shell to shame. The doctor moved up beside me and tapped the glass with her pen. And who's this little guy? There wasn't a hint of insincerity in her voice. I frowned and turned to her. That little guy was a 2,000-ton Class II kaiju. This is King. He took out both Henin and Tapaja before they could even make it ashore. I could feel the irritation in my voice, and I ground my jaw before continuing. He's been deployed in over 20 operations and succeeded against every emergence he's been pitted against. She nodded and jotted something down on her clipboard before stepping closer to the window. She stared at King for a moment, then glanced at the other kaiju and nodded. They'll do. The Dreams of Time I was just 22 when the first sighting was recorded. Drunk on my ass on the other side of the world and busy with a gap year in Asia after graduation. When the news came in, I hardly believed it. I thought I was still working off the shrooms from the night before. But no. Venice was gone. Not destroyed. Not turned to rubble and ruin. Simply gone. A black scar marked the place where the city had once stood. 300,000 people wiped out in the blink of an eye. Then the footage started rolling in. Like some great horror out of myth, the first kaiju had risen from the Adriatic 
and put the city to the torch. It's not clear what triggered the emergence or why he picked Venice, but on the 15th of April, 2023, death came to the city. The media dubbed him emperor and the name stuck. We couldn't kill him. God knows we tried. Tactical nukes, hydrogen bombs, fully mechanized units, nothing worked. Emperor was a class five kaiju at the very least. Easily surpassing 300 feet, it was estimated he weighed over 7,000 tons with multiple destroyer abilities. He was the first and he was the largest. But once he wrecked Venice, he disappeared. Nobody knows why, and we weren't given much time to think on it. After Emperor, emergences began all across the world. Turns out the kaiju had been resting beneath the ocean for millennia, and now they were waking up. Why? Nobody has quite figured that out, but teams like mine are working constantly on it. As to how we got our hands on three kaiju of our own? Well, it wasn't long before some smart-ass in a lab realised that some of these things could be controlled. Not the largest, not the dominant Category 4s and above, but the others. It had something to do with how their minds are programmed to think. The term hive mind had been thrown about, and neural linking. It means they can be trained and used as tools. It also means that, in all likelihood, some other vast consciousness is controlling the actions of the kaiju. I'll likely never understand quite how they operate, but that's not my job. What I am paid to do is Pilot King, and I do that better than anybody. The morning after I'd showed Dr. Claire Fern around the compound, I got the news that our unit was being relocated and command seconded to Admiral Armitage of the South Pacific Fleet. The news took us all by surprise. We hadn't moved facilities since operations began on the Faroe Islands almost five years ago. Any idea what's going on? Kia was my second and Riptide's pilot. She took the seat opposite mine and took a bite from her egg roll. No clue. I sipped from my coffee and watched as Max pushed his way through the canteen line. The fat Russian had a way with words, and even the larger security personnel shifted out of his way. Ever heard of this Admiral Armitage? I asked, placing my empty cup on the table and turning to Keo. She shrugged, then took the salt shaker from the table and applied it liberally to her breakfast. I don't keep track of the comings and goings of the South Pacific fleet, she said, licking sauce from her fingers. I just go where Riptide goes. Aye, and I go where Bonehead goes. Max dropped a tray piled high with food on the table and pulled up a chair. I kept telling you that they were going to send us after that big bastard, and here we are. He shoved a pork rasher into his mouth and waved a finger. They've had it out for us since we rolled over Antwerp, fighting those nasty spikeback twins. Not my fault City can't take Bonehead's weight. Not my fault, I say. I stole a chip from Max's plate and winked at Keo. You did send Bonehead through the old district when he could have stayed in the river, though. Buildings as old as the city itself turned to dust under that fat monster. 
Max slammed a palm against the table and glared at me. Not my fault, I say. All right, all right. I caught Keo's smile and patted Max on the shoulder. But I don't think they're going to send us after Emperor just for that. We see, said Max, his mouth still full of pork. But don't say I didn't warn you. I left my hand resting on the Russian's broad shoulder and reclined into my chair. Through the windows of the canteen, I could just make out one of the Leviathan haulers hovering above the compound. It'd take a dozen of them to move just one of our kaiju. Luckily, we had a whole fleet of them dedicated to our unit. They'd leave today, while we'd get a few days off, before being jetted over to our new base of operations on the furthermost tip of South America, in Chile. I hope one of you picked up Spanish in college. I think it's going to be a while before we see this place again. I slept on the flight. I always did. I wasn't in the mood for Max's stories, and Keo was an anxious flyer, which made me nervous. We landed on a private strip, just south of Panta Arenas, and took a chopper to our new compound. The weather wasn't bad, but after years of acclimatizing to Scandinavian temperatures, my shirt was already drenched. The facility was smaller than our previous one, but not by much. I could see it had been built with some haste, and construction vehicles were still parked all across the premises. They're not mucking about, said Keo, pointing out the window of the helicopter. I scrunched up my eyes against the sun and stared down at a coned building beside the compound. I'd seen one of them before in a brief foray into Russia some years back. A bumblebee, Max chortled. We must be facing the devil himself. I frowned at Keo and then stared back down at the launch site. The bumblebee, as Max referred to it, was a second-generation thermobaric missile. Capable of levelling a city in seconds, they had a tendency to make entire regions uninhabitable. As such, their use had been prohibited by the UNGDM. The Russians had still used one in Ukraine about three years ago, supposedly to take out a Class Three, but the reports had been conflicting, and it was better not to bring it up with Max. The helicopter dropped us off on the rooftop pad of the compound, where we were escorted in by a team of all-business marines. I couldn't tell by their badges where they were from, but most of these operations had dedicated special forces attached to them, so I wasn't surprised. They led us to our rooms, where we left what gear we'd brought with us, before being marched to a conference room on the upper floor for a briefing. There were no elevators, so we were forced to walk the 50-odd flight of stairs by foot, a task Max would not shut up about. When we finally made it to the right floor, the Marines left us at the door. We waited hesitantly for a moment, before Max took the initiative and barged in. Bloody hell, Max, I said, following him. Who needs an invitation when whatever I was going to say next stuck in my throat? and was replaced by a wry laugh. Fancy that. Ancient languages really do take you places. Claire Fern looked up from the head of a long table that occupied most of the room, and smiled. Nice to see you too, Captain Reynolds. I take it you're responsible for our relocation. I sat down on the edge of the table and cocked my head. 
What's a civilian doing in a top-secret military facility at the bum end of South America? Keo and Max exchanged bemused looks and pulled up seats beside me. All will be explained, Captain. Now please, if you'd take a seat, I can begin the briefing. You're leading the briefing, I said, slipping down into the chair between my squad mates. I glanced at Keo and shrugged. This wasn't what I had expected, and from the look she gave me, she hadn't either. Max seemed quite content, though, and was in the middle of mining one of his nostrils. The doctor clicked a remote, and a screen blinked into life behind her. I thought I was staring at an empty set before I realised it was a satellite shot of the sea. Gridlock coordinates appeared on the bottom left of the image, and the lens zoomed out further. Point Nemo, Claire said, leaning back in her chair to look at the screen. The furthest point from land in the entire ocean. These are from last week. She clicked the remote again. And this is from two days ago. At first, I thought it was the same image, but I quickly realized my mistake. A shadow had formed beneath the sea, spreading out across the entirety of the shot. I had no way of telling how big it was, not without another point of reference, but I guessed we wouldn't be there if it was a simple blip beneath the water. A passing cloud? Max said. He crossed his arms and leaned forward against the table. Or perhaps it is a big fish, yes? One that you want us to kill, perhaps? The doctor rolled a finger over the remote, pulling the image back until most of the South Pacific was in the shot. The black spot was still visible, a massive inky stain beneath the sea. What is it? Keo asked. An emergence? I hope not. God. Whatever it was looked to be bigger than the entire state of New York. Land, said Claire without pause. A new landmass is emerging in the middle of the South Pacific. We've seen this sort of thing before, but nothing close to this size. It is unprecedented. Interesting. But what's that got to do with us? Exploring the lost city of Atlantis isn't exactly in our job description. Claire put down the remote and turned in her seat to look at us. In the few days since I'd met her, dark circles had formed beneath her eyes, and I noticed a couple of new stress lines on her forehead. Whatever this was had taken its toll on her. I'm well aware of your areas of expertise, Captain. However, Keo was right. We're dealing with an emergence of a sort. I knew it. <laughs> it's that big bastard, isn't it? You want to send us after the devil. Me and Bonehead will do it. We don't even need these other two. I always knew it. The Russian clapped his hands together and looked at Claire expectantly. I don't know anything about Emperor, she said, to Max's disappointment. In fact, we're not dealing with a kaiju at all. This is something entirely different. I felt my brow furrow as the doctor got up from her chair. If exploring lost cities wasn't my forte, neither was solving riddles. Claire picked up a small stack of files and slid them across the table towards us, then opened up her own file and waited for us to do the same. I glanced down at the cover and blinked. Project Dreamer. I flipped through the pages, browsing through data sheets 
map coordinates, and what appeared to be old journal entries. Most of them were written in English, or in what I took to be Arabic, but there were others, and a language I wasn't familiar with. I scanned through them before settling on a photo of a white landscape beneath towering glaciers and mountainous peaks. In the centre of the image stood a group of explorers, huddled together for warmth, but grinning like madmen all the same. A burly, bearded fellow in the middle of the group held up a sign with the words Starkweather Moor Expedition, 1933. What is this shit? said Max, waving his folder at the doctor. He had a habit of being direct, but I still winced at his bluntness. This is all we have. Claire took off her glasses and pinched the bridge of her nose. The culmination of years of work, sacrifice, and the lives of great men and women, some of whom were my friends. This shit is the reason you are all here. Max sunk into his chair a little and stared fixedly at his file. Apology, he said, keeping his eyes lowered. I mean no offence. The doctor ignored him and turned back to the screen. When the kaiju first appeared, I thought it had something to do with this. Something to do... With him. But I was wrong. She pressed the button and Point Nemo disappeared. Another image took its place, this time of the stars. You see, while your kaiju rampaged across the globe, another threat was preparing to unleash itself. It has been waiting for a long time, but I believe that wait is coming to an end. I squinted at the screen and felt my jaw clench. There was something wrong with the stars. Scattered about the black sky, they shone with dizzying intensity, but in a manner I found entirely unfamiliar. It was only later that I realised why. The constellations had started to shift, turning into some corruption of their former selves. More than that, I couldn't put into words, but a sense of foreboding washed over me like a warm tide. So... The stars are sick. What's that to us? Claire swiped to the next image. It was of a rock face or wall. It was taken too close for me to tell. Drops of water covered its surface, and slime hung to it in great clumps. But what caught my eye were the inscriptions carved upon it. Various shapes and symbols had been etched into the stone, their individual meaning completely unknown to me. Yet... Somehow, I felt I understood the message they were trying to get across. In his house at Rylea, dead Cthulhu waits dreaming. Claire gave voice to the words I felt were already bouncing around inside my head, and I shivered. Beneath the sprawling text, a hunched figure had been carved into the wall. The style was primitive, and the artist had lacked the skill necessary for the task. And yet... It triggered some primordial fear in me that I had not felt in years, not even in the face of kaiju. Thick, tentacle-like tendrils hung from the thing's pulpy face, while its grotesque body was simultaneously humanoid yet impossibly alien. The cephalopod head was bent forward, allowing the ends of the tendrils on its face to brush the back of the huge forepaws that clutched the thing's elevated knees. I blinked away from the screen, and looked at the doctor instead, only to find her eyes fixed on me, 
as if I were some patient ready for examination. This is real, Captain. A being so vast and unknowable has chosen our little world to be the subject of its administrations. Even as he rests, his minions conspire to bring about his eventual awakening. If this were to ever happen, it would doom us all. She tapped the remote again and nodded towards the screen. A new image had appeared, this time of a barnyard. Livestock walked freely around the driveway, and an old pickup with a flat tyre sat parked outside. I felt Claire's eyes on me again as I studied the image. A pair of pigs were rifling through a garbage can next to the barn, but their limbs were bulbous and deformed. Pustules and warts grew out from their distended bellies, and horrific growths hung from their necks. The other animals seemed similarly afflicted, and I struggled to maintain my focus on the image. This was taken two weeks ago in Arkham, Massachusetts. The next photo was of the sky above the barn house, taken during the night. Instead of the stars, a shifting blur of colours covered the heavens. It reminded me of the aurora borealis we sometimes saw when we were still stationed on the Faroe Islands. What you're looking at does not fall inside anything known in the visible spectrum. The electromagnetic... Someone was screaming. I tried to look away from the colours, but I couldn't move my head. I felt my lips go dry, and I struggled to even blink. That voice. I tried to focus on it, to pinpoint where it was coming from. It sounded like an echo from the bottom of the well, but I recognised it. A chill ran down my spine, and I felt goosebumps cover my neck and arms. My breath started to come in short, tight rasps, and all the while, the screaming continued. I knew that voice. It was my own. I managed to tear my gaze from the photograph, nearly pulling myself out of my seat in the process. I was breathing heavily, and I could feel my heart pounding against my chest. Everything all right, Captain? Claire was staring at me a look of genuine concern on her face. I glanced about the room and saw that Max had started praying to himself, something I hadn't seen since Brussels. Keo looked like she'd just seen a ghost, but she managed to smile when she saw me looking. Captain? Claire switched off the screen and took a breath. I'm fine, I said, gathering up the strength needed for a smile. I don't know what came over me. She nodded and sat back down in her seat. You understand a little bit more now, I think. All of these events tie in with the mythos I have been studying for years. But I am not the only one who has been watching. And not all who have been watching have good intentions. There are those who seek to bring about the end of the world, to raise the Dreadlord from his slumber. I believe they are on the cusp of succeeding. Who would want to do such a thing? Keo seemed to have recovered and was staring down at her file. Madmen, lunatics, and those who desire power. I have only met one such man before, and he fell quite comfortably into the first category. Can we stop them? Perhaps. I have teams moving in on known cultists as we speak, but it may not be enough. In all likelihood, it won't be. 
she pressed her glasses against her brow and stared at us. We are about to witness a paradigm shift, a significant change in the global hierarchy. Earth will become the playground of beings beyond our understanding, and we their playthings. Unless we succeed, unless we stop him on Rylea. Ex Oblivione. We were eating a late dinner in our new canteen when the Leviathan haulers finally arrived. They'd flown over 10,000 miles without stopping, slowing only for in-air refueling and safety checks. Their cargo, over 6,000 tons of kaiju, hung in harnesses beneath the squadrons of helicopters and were secured by reinforced plasma rope. They'd been kept in stasis the entire journey and would be grumpy when they woke up. You think she's right? Keo stood beside me, munching on a granola bar as we watched the Leviathans deliver their cargo. I think enough important people do. Enough to justify our being here anyway. That's not what I asked, Daniela. I know, but I'm still trying to wrap my head around this end-of-the-world thing. I definitely felt something looking at those pictures. And you can't tell me the stars haven't started looking a little weird right now. Keo leaned against my arm and stared up at the sky with me. They look like tiny lanterns against a stormy sea. Poetic, I said with a smile. I turned to get another hot dog when Max rushed into the canteen, waving his arms at us. Turn on television, quick! What's up? I looked around the table for the remote before Max turned on the television manually. It's bad. He swallowed his food and flipped through the channels, muttering beneath his breath. Real bad, Cap. Real bad. He settled on a channel and turned up the volume before coming over to join us. A curly-haired blonde reporter was staring into the camera, reading out a breaking news story while images played out beside her. The footage looked like it was out of a dystopian horror. Tanks were rolling through Washington, D.C. Military personnel were setting up roadblocks all across the city. More footage showed a firefight between the military and private citizens. It was over in seconds. And in China, calamity has struck after nuclear warheads were deployed in the cities of Shenzhen, Guangzhou and Nanjing. Casualties are estimated to be in the hundreds of thousands, with unconfirmed reports listing President Xi Jinping among those who have died. What the hell is going on? I watched in horror as scenes from all over the world played out on the news. A military coup in the United States. Assassinations across all levels of government. Riots in India, Europe and Russia. The complete breakdown of order. The television went off, and I turned around to find Dr. Fern standing with a remote pointed at the screen. It's happening sooner than I expected. She dropped the remote on the table and waited for the questions she knew would follow. Max was furious. You knew this would happen? How? Why? She raised the placatory hand and waited for the redness to leave his face. I had an idea, she said, once he'd calmed. You must understand. His worshippers have been preparing for this for centuries. 
infiltrating governments, military, media, everything they can get their fingers into. Now, they are making ready for his arrival. Her voice quivered for a moment before she composed herself. My teams have failed to uproot the cults. We'll only have one more chance to stop him before it's too late. I flinched as the first siren in the compound started to wail. It was joined by another, and then another, until the whole facility was one blaring alarm. Claire nodded sadly and stared up into the night sky. He is awakening. I was strapped into the chest of a refitted CH-53K King Stallion helicopter, along with the rest of my team. The hold had long since been cleared out of anything deemed unnecessary, and a unit of tech wizards sat scrolling through reams of data. Three of the screens were dedicated solely to King's vitals. I could see his dual hearts beating a steady pace as the pressure from stasis was slowly lifted. He'd be fully awake by the time we committed to neural linking, and then my work would begin. Dr. Fern sat beside Keo to my left, while Max had taken to standing beside the portside gunner, putting everyone in the hold on edge. Stars aren't right, he said into his headset, glancing back at us. I looked out of the closest window and took a deep breath. I'd seen photos of Westerhout 5 and the Taurus Cloud Complex, Beautiful celestial clusters of red and blue that shone like fire from space. But even they paled in comparison to the sky above our heads. A dense mass of swirling light and colour blanketed the heavens. Star formations I'd never seen before hovered between great clouds of molecular gas. Wisps of colour rippled between the clusters, and I felt my head start to spin. Everything appeared closer than it should like someone had magnified the sky and brought it down on us. We're nearly there. Claire had unstrapped from her harness and was standing next to me, staring out the window. It won't be long now before he awakens. It's best you ready yourself for deployment. I nodded, and then signaled to Keo and Max as I undid my harness. My squad mates moved in beside me as I walked across the hold, a hand gripped tight to the railing for balance. One of our support staff helped strap us into the seats of the cockpit before he plugged us into the interface. A screen was shoved in front of my face and cables plugged into pads on the side of my head. Finally, I felt the cold steel tip of a needle pierce my arm as relaxant was pumped into my veins. The whole process took less than a minute and I settled into my seat, waiting for the neural link to activate. The first time I'd linked to King had nearly been the last. His vast consciousness had threatened to swallow my own, and it was only through the quick thinking of my team that I'd managed to get out at all. The second time had been better, and by the third time the operation was deemed a success. Still, there was always the threat that, one day, I'd slip and disappear forever. Pilots don't like to dwell on that fact, and most of us acted like it couldn't happen at all. But I knew. I'd been close enough to almost touch it. People think neural linking gives us control of the kaiju we pilot. Even the term pilot seems to indicate as much. In reality, we're more like handlers than anything else. 
We don't gain direct control of our ward, but we can make suggestions and try to influence the way the kaiju think. We just stop them from going on a rampage, mostly. Max had once said we were passengers in the back seat trying to tell the driver where to go. I liked that. Claire walked across the hall towards us, her hair flowing out behind her in the wind. She stopped beside my seat and stared at the visual on the screen before me. Our chopper was trailing just behind the leviathan haulers, and King, Riptide and Bonehead still hung from their harnesses. From King's twitching tails, I could see he was close to waking up. Beneath the squadron of haulers, the sea was a heaving mass of thundering waves and murky black water. There's nowhere to deploy, I said, still watching the screen. My words were slightly slurred as the relaxant started to make its presence felt. Unless you want to drop us right into the sea. Give it a second. We waited for a minute, and then another, before Keo nudged me with her arm from the seat beside me. Look, she said, pointing a finger at a dark smudge on her screen. I stared hard at the smudge, before I realized what it was I was seeing, and then gasped despite myself. Land was emerging from the ocean, even as we watched. A coastline of mud and ooze rose steadily before us, buffeted by the waves that hammered against it. Strange buildings grew from out of the sea. Monolithic edifices formed from colossal greenish stone blocks. Cyclopean statues the size of skyscrapers pierced the night sky triumphantly, their blasphemous visages leering loathsomely across the mud banks. Behind them, a great acropolis broke out from beneath the waves, and streams of water ran off the structures like steaming rivers. There was something strange about the architecture of the buildings, something that made my stomach flip. The shapes and angles had no logic to them, no bearing on our reality. They should not have worked, adopting some contorted form of spherical geometry that had no place in our universe. And yet, there it stood, rising from the sea like some dread citadel. Rylea, Claire whispered. I pulled my eyes away from the screen and turned to the doctor. She was breathing heavily, and sweat covered her upper lip and brow. There was fear in her eyes, but something else too. You're excited, I said, recognizing that look. It was the same look I got just before linking with King. Of course I am. She brushed aside her hair and met my stare. For years I've studied every scrap, every word I could find on this city. On him. People told me I was as mad as the cults I studied, that this was all nonsense. To see my theories confirmed. To know that my colleagues did not die in vain. Of course I'm excited. I've just seen my life's work validated. Max chuckled on the other side of the hold. Let's just hope you live long enough to enjoy it. He tapped a chubby finger against his screen and nodded towards it. You see? In the center of the Acropolis, beneath jagged spires that made my eyes hurt to look at, were the doors to a titanic vault. Covered in weeds and slime, innumerable markings had been etched onto the surface. The doors of the crypt seemed to distort as I stared at them shifting from impossible shape to impossible shape. I knew then, without a shadow of a doubt, 
that no mortal hand had been responsible for their creation. It's now or never, Captain. I felt the doctor grip my shoulder and knew that she was right. If whatever was in there was allowed to get out, it'd be tickets for the lot of us. Max, Keo, engage neural links on my say-so. I glanced at the screen one last time and thought I saw a flicker of eldritch light emanating from within the crypt, but it was gone before I could focus in on it. Bonehead landed with a thunderous crunch upon the still-forming landmass. His thick pads cracked the tiles beneath him, and gouts of water sprayed from a crevice his one foot had caught in. He pulled it out with a satisfying pop and rose onto his hind legs to take in his surrounds. For the first time, perhaps in Bonehead's life, he found himself in a city built for a being of his size. He turned his head from side to side and sniffed the air. I knew that Max would be working on gaining a foothold on Bonehead's consciousness. It usually took a couple of seconds for the pilot to adjust. Then it was game time. Ready to deploy, Captain, Keo's voice sounded in my helmet, and I confirmed with a quick glance towards the digital relay in my visor. Activate Riptide, I breathed into my mic. The Leviathan haulers responded in an instant, releasing the fastenings that kept Keo's kaiju airborne. Riptide's landing was more graceful than Bonehead's, and she was already moving forward when the last of the plasma ropes fell from her side. I monitored her progress for a second, noting how quickly Keo had her under control. She was getting faster than me. Then again, Riptide was far more docile than King, even if I'd never say as much to Keo. Ready to deploy, came a voice through my helmet, one of the Leviathan carrier pilots. Just a second, I said, as Riptide and Bonehead approached the monstrous portal, the supposed lair of the enemy. It towered over even them, and seemed to shift and move, disrupting all known laws of matter, warping my perspective. As Riptide got closer, I noticed that flicker of luminosity once again. It came from inside the vault, despite it still appearing to be sealed tight. I frowned and ran a heat scan of the crypt, but what came back was a garbled mess. Captain? Claire crouched down beside my seat and nodded to the screen. You must deploy now. There's not much time. Even as she said the words, a bright beam of light of blinding intensity shot out from the crypt. Or was it from the stars to the vault? I couldn't tell. When I opened my eyes again, the light was gone. But a gaping black abyss stood where the sealed doors had once been. The darkness was so thick, so all-consuming, it almost had a material quality to it. There's no time! I felt Claire's nails dig into my arm, and I smashed my hand on the activation seal without a second thought. I fell to the ground with King. We landed on all fours, even as our consciousnesses danced around one another. He was always hesitant to accept me, to lose full autonomy. I didn't blame him. Before we'd figured out how to break the synaptic control of whatever hive mind governed the kaiju, he'd been little more than a drone, carrying out the vicious desires of some other sentient body. After a moment, King stopped pushing back, and I settled into the narrow mental corridor he'd provided for me. 
I could still see everything from my seat in the helicopter above, but another POV had been superimposed over my normal vision. The result of a superchip embedded in King's skull that activated once I'd committed to neural linking. King quickly moved through the strange city, unconcerned by the warped architecture and hexagonal structures that surrounded us. His clawed pads cut deep grooves into the greenstone beneath us, and I could feel his triple tails flicking out behind us. This sunken city meant nothing to him, and I felt myself relax a little. Dr. Fern had spooked me, that much was true. But whatever lurked within the depths of Rylea had never fought Kaiju before. Not like ours, anyway. Riptide and Bonehead were still standing before the Black Portal, and they both turned at our arrival. It's like nothing I've ever seen before, I heard Kyo's voice in my ear. Smells like shit, too. I let King's senses roam, exerting my will only lightly as I stared into the cavity. Max was right. The smell emanating from the gaping hole was intolerable, and I would have gagged had I not been hundreds of feet above in the helicopter. I felt King flinch as he picked up on a disturbance in that great cavernous pit. The kaiju tilted his saurian head and took a cautious step forward. I could hear it too. A wet sloshing sound coming from deep within the doorway. Bonehead and Riptide moved forward beside us, listening intently to the jarring slopping noise. It's too late, said Claire, her voice on the edge of panic. We've left it too late. The seal is opened. Look at the stars, said Keo breathlessly. I exerted my will over King, and he tilted his head towards the heavens. The sky had taken on a velvety red tinge, and I watched as a ripple of energy coursed from the furthermost constellations to those directly above us. It wavered for a moment, hovering just above our heads, and then shot straight down toward the open tomb a coursing current pumping directly into that gaping moor. The slopping noise came to an immediate halt and was replaced by the sound of a thousand horns, blaring their distorted notes until I felt my eyes start to water and my ears bleed. The fanfare ended as abruptly as it had begun and finally the being it heralded began to emerge. I felt an alien consciousness brush against my own Something so vast and loathsome that I nearly decoupled from King. As it was, King's own immense consciousness acted as a buffer and saved me from what could only be madness. Max and Keo were in similar positions, and I heard Keo cry out as the Dreadlord finally emerged from his vault. A flabby claw gripped the edge of the crypt, and the masonry cracked beneath it. Another claw appeared dragging itself across the chipped stone as the immensity within pulled itself from the tomb. A sickly green form and a cursed shape squeezed itself out from the black doorway and onto the slimy flagstones of Rylea. Though vaguely anthropoidal in shape, the being's massive head was not unlike that of a cephalopod, with rubbery feelers and scaly amphibian skin. The outline of the thing seemed to flicker as I stared at it, shifting between our reality and another, imposing itself on our cosmos. I was immediately reminded of the carving Claire had shown us during her briefing, and realised the being depicted was the very same.
The creature lumbered forward, and I saw that two bony wings jutted out from behind its back. It towered over us, standing at nearly double Bonehead's height, and was at least a third taller than King. There was something about the way it moved that hinted at a great density, like that of a star compressed into a living form. No bigger than a class three, I said into my headset, trying my best to hold my nerve. We've dealt with worse. Even as I spoke the words, I knew them to be false. I could feel my mind starting to fray, and chattering, gibbering voices tugged at the tattered ends of my consciousness. I tried to drown them out, focusing instead on reining King in. The presence of that thing had stirred something within the kaiju, and he was champing at the bit. Keo, give him a barrage, will you? Let's see what this thing is made of. A green light flashed in the top left corner of my visor, as Keo confirmed, and a moment later, Riptide was on the move. Her pilot led her past the crumbled remains of a spire, until she stood directly in front of the thing from the Star Vault. It was only then that Cthulhu appeared to notice our presence at all. Two black eyes, as deep and old as the universe itself, stared down at Riptide. I saw a spike in Keo's vitals. Her heart rate was peaking. Keo! I turned in my seat and placed a gentle hand on her shoulder. She was sweating profusely, her eyes fixed before her. She was staring right into its gaze. Somehow she managed to jerk out of whatever trance held her, and she nodded towards me curtly, before dedicating herself to controlling Riptide. Volley fire, she confirmed. Two cylindrical organic pipes emerged from Riptide's chest, already glowing red from the heat the kaiju was generating. The air around them crackled and started to blur as energy was channeled towards the bioweapons. That'll pump him. <laughs> Max chortled. Bonehead was already moving in, ready to follow up on the vicious volley Riptide was about to deliver. We'd repeated this maneuver countless times, to devastating effect. Riptide would open up on any emergence with a salvo, while Bonehead and King moved in to finish off anything that managed to survive. Riptide dug her heels into the concrete beneath her and opened up her chest, just as Cthulhu started to move towards her. Two gouts of burning hot plasma shot out at the Dreadlord, melting stone and sand as it raced towards their target. A blinding flash followed, and I turned away from the screen, blinking rapidly. Again, I said, trying to catch a glimpse of what remained beneath the smoke. Bonehead was pounding forward, cutting great grooves into the green stones as he moved in. Riptide started drawing in the energy needed for another shot, allowing the already superheated cylinders no time to cool. Quickly! I squinted into the cloud of dust and ash particles. There was a flicker of movement, and then a shadow shifted. A great, oozing green appendage emerged from the billowing cloud, and then the dreadlord stepped forward. Though the plasma had hit him head-on, he appeared unscathed by the barrage. I'd seen similar volleys tear open Class 3s and cripple at least a few Class 4s, but they'd done nothing to him. The looming figure ignored Riptide and turned to face the charging bonehead, lifting its gigantic limbs to tackle the kaiju head-on. I heard Max's roar through my headset and watched as Bonehead switched to all fours. The kaiju slammed into Cthulhu with a crunch nearly lifting him from his feet 
pushing him across the flagstones. But the thing from the vault was not to be undone so easily, and it quickly found its balance. It shifted against Bonehead's weight, grappling with him for control, until he managed to get an arm around Bonehead's fortified skull. The crypt creature dragged a malefic talon across the kaiju's back, tearing through flesh and bone like it was nothing, and I watched as Max's ward struggled to get out of the thing's grip. Again! I shouted, turning to Keo. But Bonehead, he's in the way. Get him out of there, Max. Keo, take the shot. I prompted King forward, releasing the brakes and letting his instincts take over. Bonehead managed to get out of the headlock just as Riptide launched another volley. The barrel-chested kaiju rolled out of the way, narrowly avoiding the scalding hot torrents of supercharged energy. Another cloud of ash and magnetic energy formed, but this time Cthulhu did not wait for it to clear before making his move. The Dreadlord seemed to materialize out of nothingness behind Bonehead. The cephalopod limbs on its face whipped out like tentacles, attaching themselves to the kaiju's neck and wrapping around his face before he could get out of the way. I heard Max grunt as the creature began to exert pressure on Bonehead's skull, clenching tighter and tighter. King broke out into a run, sensing the danger, but it was too late. With a sickening crunch, Cthulhu crushed Bonehead's skull and let his lifeless body fall to the floor. Max's anguished screams pierced through the neural link, an explosion of hurt and anger that threatened to knock the connection between me and King. I could feel him bucking in his seat beside Keo, and it was only when one of our support staff tranquilized him that the screams subsided. King drew up alongside Riptide and watched as the Dreadlord moved away from Bonehead's carcass, trudging slowly through the towering buildings. It seemed unconcerned by the presence of the other two kaiju. Why shouldn't it be? It had just crushed the skull of the most resilient of the trio, like it was made from paper. King bristled at the lack of respect, and I felt my control on him lessen as anger pulsed through his veins. Riptide was already lining up for another shot, and I heard Keo urging her on to greater strengths. I felt the same confusion King felt as the great being turned away from us, instead making its way toward the sea. You cannot let him get away. I heard Claire's voice shrill in my ear, and I nodded. Whatever happened, we couldn't let this thing get off the island. It would sweep across the world like a rotten tide, leaving nothing but chaos in its wake. That bumblebee operational. I turned in my seat to stare at the doctor. Her thin brows knitted together, and she nodded. Good, I said, flicking back to King's POV. We'll keep him on the island as long as we can. Blast this place to hell. It'd take a few minutes for Claire to get authorization, and then another minute or so for the thermobaric missile to be launched. But once it was, it'd arrive in seconds. We've got to hold him, I said, signaling to Keo through my visor. For at least a few minutes, but as long as we can. We'd come to kill him, and it had taken hardly a few minutes for us to realize we never stood a chance. King started moving through the buildings, barreling through the grotesque stone structures as he built up momentum. The being from the vault was a couple hundred meters away, already on the outskirts of the sunken city. 
it wouldn't be long before he reached the muddy shoreline and disappeared forever. Light him up. I blinked a confirmation into my visor and watched from above as Riptide commenced one final barrage. Her aim was true, and dual beams of plasma scorched a path across the ruins, smashing into Cthulhu's exposed back. The Dreadlord stumbled forward, extending a claw to try and maintain its balance, but then King was on him. The kaiju bellowed out in rage as it connected with its target, slamming the bulbous growths on its shoulders into the thing's side. Cthulhu staggered, still recovering from the force of Riptide's plasma volley. Still maintaining his grip on Cthulhu's midriff, King dropped a fused arm, clamped down on the Dreadlord's exposed leg, and heaved. There was a moment when nothing happened, and it looked like the thing would recover its balance entirely. Then, with a colossal groan, the Dreadlord fell. King stayed on him, even as they tumbled, pressing home the advantage. He slammed a clawed fist into Cthulhu's side and swiped away the tentacles that tried to grip onto his face. The two titans collapsed against the sprawling temple, no doubt the home of some foul pantheon, leaving ruin and rubble in their wake. When the dust settled, King was sat upon the Dreadlord, digging his massive claws into the creature's neck and chest. Ikor spurted from the wounds, drenching the kaiju in a sickly lather. Cthulhu bucked beneath him, but still he clung on. So it can be hurt. I tagged Kyo with my visor relay. See if you can't help King keep that thing down. Maybe drop some plasma down its throat. Riptide responded instantly, loping through the wreckage of the Dread City as she made her way to the battle. If they could just hold him in place for another minute or two. A spike on King's monitor drew my eyes back to the fight, and I found myself smiling. The kaiju had managed to get both its legs over Cthulhu's midriff, and was holding down his head with a fused limb. Despite the crypt thing's size advantage, he didn't seem able to get out from the hold. King brought his head closer to the Dreadlords, snapping at any of the appendages that tried to attach themselves to him. A sickly, bioluminescent glow shone from out of his mouth, and venom dripped onto the cephalopod face beneath him. I thought I heard a hiss of pain coming from the thing's mouth, but I couldn't be sure. The glow grew until a yellow orb of putrescent light oozed out from between King's teeth, bathing the area around them in an eerie tinge. Cthulhu lashed out beneath him, intensifying his efforts to break out of the kaiju's hole, but it was in vain. King's grip would not be broken. With a bestial roar, King unleashed a torrent of biotoxins directly into the Dreadlord's face. Hundreds of gallons of poisonous, gelatinous liquid washed over him, covering his eyes and mouth, entering every crevice and hole it could find. Steam rose from Cthulhu's rubbery flesh, and I saw his tentacles try to retreat from the poison, before his entire face was hidden beneath King's toxic spew. The kaiju vomited out a final spray of biotoxin and stared down into the bubbling swamp that now covered the Dreadlord's face. Nothing could survive that, I was certain. It didn't matter what dimension you came from or how many worshippers you had. Taking King's kiss directly in the face was a death sentence, even for a god. But I was wrong. The air around Cthulhu shimmered and distorted, 
even as the venomous spray evaporated or seeped into the ground beneath him. King tilted his head, and I felt his uncertainty across the neural link. Before King could make another move, the Dreadlord's massive paw shot out from the ground and wrapped itself around his neck. The kaiju tried to claw it away, angling his razor-sharp mandible horns downward to cut at the flesh. His triple tails flashed behind him, slicing through the air to pierce Cthulhu's arms and face. The Dreadlord shifted beneath King, leaning his body against his other arm as he lifted himself from the ground. His modest wings angled out behind him, fluttering as they added power to his movements. I managed to catch a glimpse of his face as he rose. King's attack had left it a smouldering wreck of boiling blisters and scarred flesh. Many of the tentacle-like tendrils had been fused together or burnt away entirely, leaving black-stained flesh in their place. King sliced down with one of his tails, cutting into Cthulhu's ruined face, but the Dreadlord was ready for it, and a clawed hand caught the tail before King could recover. Get in there! I shouted into my headset, with a glance at Keo. Cthulhu now had King by the neck and tail, and was starting to pull. I had no idea if he had the strength to tear the kaiju apart, but after seeing what he'd done to Bonehead, I didn't want to wait to find out. Superheated plasma heralded Riptide's arrival, slamming against the arm that held King's tail. Cthulhu's grip slackened long enough for King to pull his tail away, and the kaiju put all his strength behind getting out of the Dreadlord's vice-like grip. Riptide swung around from the other side and held onto the thing's other arm, preventing it from doubling down on its hold on King. With the strength of two kaijus on him, Cthulhu finally relinquished his grasp, letting King slip out from between his claws. The kaiju rolled back on his heels, pushing himself away from the Dreadlord, while Riptide did the same from the other side. Its face, said Keo, almost too soft for me to hear. It's healing. I stared hard at the screen and then waited for King to get a better look. Keo was right. The charred mess of flesh that made up Cthulhu's face was repairing itself, knitting back together the scarred flesh, even as we watched. The cuts on its chest had already disappeared, and any sign that it had ever been hurt was gone. We can't win this. I shook my head and took a deep breath. I didn't even know if the bumblebee would make a difference, if there was even a point delaying the inevitable. It's not coming. I felt Claire's hand on my shoulder. They won't authorize the strike. Something has gone wrong. What do you mean? I nearly pulled my helmet off and felt a bit of King's anger course through my veins. Tell them to fire the damn missile. We need to kill this thing here and now. Claire shook her head a tired look in her eyes. They spoke of resignation, of failure. It's the cult. I think they've somehow managed to infiltrate the facility. We're on our own. I swore. Then we're done for. Below us, the Dreadlord waded forward, seeming to grow in size and stature as our last hope was dashed. I could feel that gibbering madness again, just on the edge of hearing and I recoiled as the lumbering behemoth turned its gaze towards our helicopter. I knew then and there that there was no god, that this titan from the stars and the gibbering voices were more real than any belief I'd ever held. 
I wanted to laugh and scream at the realization, but something anchored me to my sanity. I looked down and saw that King was still circling the Dreadlord, was still willing to engage, despite the impossibility of the task. Riptide, too. Perhaps they sensed the apocalyptic nature of the being they faced. Perhaps they didn't want to lose the first home they'd found. Not without a fight. I wasn't going to get in their way. Decoupling from King, I moved my hand over the deactivation seal and nodded to Keo. Let's see what they can do without a leash. I pressed the button and felt the pressure lift immediately. King noticed it too and rolled his massive shoulders as he adjusted. Keo followed my lead, closing the neural link with Riptide. She exhaled heavily beside me and removed her helmet. Now what? I shrugged. The law of the jungle prevails. They've got a better chance without us slowing them down. And it's not like we need to stop them from destroying this place. It can go to hell for all I care. My second nodded and focused back on her screen. The law of the jungle, then. Down below, King bellowed out a challenge and slammed a meaty fist against the ground. He moved onto all fours, keeping his body close to the shattered tiles beneath him. Riptide was already generating the energy required for another shot. This time, however, she was moving in step with the other kaiju. Cthulhu stretched out his wings and broke out into a loping run. With each stride he took, the wings flapped gracelessly behind him, but he picked up speed at a remarkable pace. The colossal titans met with a scream of tearing flesh and broken bones. Riptide unleashed her load on the Dreadlord the moment before they collided, while King slammed upwards at the last second, trying to skewer Cthulhu with his horns. The thing shrugged off the plasma and smashed a fist into King's face, halting the charge in its steps. Riptide crashed in a moment later, swinging her fused arms at the Dreadlord's face, forcing him off the other kaiju. She was lighter than King, but she was fast and managed to pull back before Cthulhu could hook onto her with his feelers. King shook off the blow and reared up onto his haunches. His barbed tail shot out with blinding speed, and I heard the Dreadlord groan as his stomach was punctured by the blades, his arms floundering as they tried to block the strikes. Riptide swung in again, lashing out with her own tail as she tried to flank her prey, while King moved in the opposite direction. The two kaiju began to circle Cthulhu. Is it just me, or does he look a little slower? Kyo shifted on her seat and tilted her head as she watched the fight play out. The Dreadlord trudged forward, clumsily blocking another attack from King, but opening up his side to Riptide, who didn't wait for a second invitation. She knocked aside his arm with her shoulder and sunk her teeth deep into his belly, tearing flesh from him. The kaiju spat it out on the ground as she retreated, before the Dreadlord could respond. The thing let out an ear-splitting bellow and held a clawed paw to its side, turning its great head from kaiju to kaiju. Keo was right. He was slower, more lethargic than he'd been when he first emerged. The stars, said Claire. She pulled herself towards the helicopter door and stared out into the inky black sky. They're changing again. I glanced out the nearest window and saw that she was right. 
the red tinge had disappeared, and the heavens no longer felt like they were about to fall on our heads. Though far from normal, they were starting to resemble something less foreboding. King sprung forward again, sensing weakness, and slammed a shoulder into the side Cthulhu was favouring. The dreadlord stumbled back, lashing out with a talon, landing a glancing blow on the kaiju's head. But the impetus was gone, and King shrugged it off. Riptide darted in, narrowly avoiding a swipe from Cthulhu, and sprayed a torrent of plasma at the dreadlord's chest. The thing stumbled back, nearly collapsing against the side of a monolithic building, but somehow managed to retain its balance. The other kaiju bounded in, spewing his vile luminous sludge across the old one's leg, before snapping at the hand that tried to push him away. The dreadlord howled as the biotoxins burnt through his flesh, leaving tumorous welts in their wake. He took a step back, and then another, as the kaiju circled him like sharks in open water. They're herding him back to the vault, said Claire, glancing at me from the helicopter door. With each step, King and Riptide were forcing the old one back into the city. I don't know if they thought they could force the dreadlord back into his tomb, or if it was just instinctual, but it was working. The old one ducked beneath a flurry of King's strikes and kicked him back with a massive foot before weaving out of the way of another plasma volley. He'd grown even slower, and the high-density plasma shot knocked him on the shoulder, flinging him back against another ruin. Cthulhu howled his defiance and clambered back to his feet. His movements were unbalanced and tired, and he barely managed to pull himself upright. Perhaps sensing the change, he stared up into the sky and watched as the stars that had brought him forth slunk back into the abyss of night. He let out a single mournful bellow and then turned his back on the kaiju, before walking back of his own accord towards the vault. What is he doing? asked Keo. I shrugged and turned to the doctor. The stars aren't right, she said, taking off her glasses and wiping away the sweat from her brow. It is not his time. I raised a brow, but nodded anyway. Whatever the reason, Cthulhu was making his way back through the city. He barely attempted to fend off King when next he struck, and the massive kaiju bit off great clumps of the old one's flesh. Riptide slammed into his back, tearing into his exposed wings and flesh with tooth and claw. The dreadlord ignored her and continued his march towards his crypt, picking up speed as he did so, despite her added weight. When the vault finally appeared, Cthulhu's flesh was torn through in a dozen places and great gashes had formed all along his head and sides. King and Riptide backed off content to watch as the dreadlord limped across the flagstones towards the gaping black hole. His body's regeneration had slowed, and the wounds that covered him festered and bled across the tiles beneath him. When he reached the vault, the dreadlord placed a hand on the slimy stone door and stared up at us. I felt the whispering voices, the soft hysteria of madness as it brushed against my mind. I heard the gibbered chants of beings I hoped to never encounter, and saw the dread citadel reflected in his eyes, a place of eldritch light and sickening despair. And then it was gone. The old one squeezed his girth between the stone doors 
and pushed himself into the great chasm that lay at the centre of Rylea. The last thing I saw of him was the flick of his great tail, just before the doors to the vault closed shut behind him, sealing him in his tomb, even as the sea began to reclaim the lost city once more. Perhaps King and Riptide wore down that thing from the vault, beating it into submission until finally it was forced to concede defeat and return to the black hole from whence it came. Maybe, there in that dark crypt, the creature died from its wounds. That's what I like to think anyway, that our kaijus beat down on a cosmic being beyond our comprehension and punished it for its hubris. But maybe Claire's theory is correct and the stars weren't right. Perhaps, one day, the dreadlord Cthulhu will rise again and bring forth an age of madness and unspeakable horror. Maybe, when the stars are right, he will come back to conquer our world, his emergence heralding a reign of darkness that will last for all eternity and scar the minds of all those who live to see it come to pass. I plan on being long dead before that ever happens. You've been listening to Cthulhu vs. Kaiju by Mitchell Luti, performed by Anna Capraro and Scott Miller. Production copyright for Sentinel Creatives. Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or iHeartRadio today. There's eight different podcasts, one for each day of the week and genre, and the Mutual Audio Network broadcast feed so you don't miss a day of your favorite shows. Subscribe to Mutual Audio tonight. Good night. <laughs>